Let's just ask God's blessing upon his word. Ask him to minister to us this morning. Heavenly Father, we are so dependent upon you to give life to your word. Lord, for you are the life giver. Lord, you only alone have the words of eternal life. And so as we come to the scriptures this morning, I pray that you would speak to us, that you would impart your, your knowledge and your wisdom, and that you would impart the burning issue on your heart to our heart, that we'd be receptive, Lord, for everything that you want to say and do in our lives. So we ask your blessing. We ask your anointing upon everything that's said and done this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Praise God. There's so much I want to say this morning. Uh, I can't contain it all uh, in what I prepared. I just had to um, just cut out so much stuff. I, I thought, oh, Lord, I uh, wouldn't go for two, but uh, so I've, I've really just prepared my heart for what I can share with you this morning. I just want to start off this because I want to talk about heaven and hell. and um, I want to talk about uh, uh, this guy who was a really passionate golfer. And um, he was very seriously seeking God in prayer as to whether there were golf courses in heaven. You know, <laughs> some people just wouldn't be happy without a golf course in heaven. You know? So he was praying and praying. One day an angel appeared unto him. And uh, he said, I've got good news and I've got bad news for you. I said, which do you want first? He said, oh, give, give us the good news. He said, you won't believe the golf courses in heaven. They are fantastic. You've got rivers and you've got lakes. and you've, The bunkers are so magnificent. And it really is something that's out of this world, literally out of this world. And uh, you know, this guy's getting really excited. He said, what's more, you've got 24-hour access. Uh, you can play day and night because there is no night in heaven. And you have your own personal caddy 24, 24 hours a day. He said, man, that's fantastic. He said, he said what's the bad news? Says you're teeing off on Thursday. <laughs> now, many people scoff at the idea of hell, but the Bible teaches it. And our foremost authority for talking about that is in Luke uh, uh, chapter 12 and verse 5. But our foremost authority is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself who taught about hell. And I want to read that scripture that I've just mentioned to you, Luke 12 and 5. It says, But I will forewarn you whom you shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed hath the power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. Not a very popular topic in, in some churches these days. We don't want to talk about hell. But the Bible talks about it, amen? amen. And we're here to study the Bible. So we're going to look at that. We're going to look at that. You know, it's very important. It's not a popular doctrine. But no matter how unpopular this doctrine, uh, the scoffers will never be able to quench the fires of hell. Can you say amen? <laughs> Truly, there is a hell to shun and a heaven to gain. It's well been said that if there's no hell, no place of torment, then Calvary was the blunder of the ages. God sacrificed his one and only son for nothing. All the pain, all the blood, all the suffering, was for nothing if there is no hell in the world. If there's no hell, there's no justice. We may as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Justice demands that the wicked be punished. Can you say amen? 
A.W. Tozer, a really famous preacher from days gone by, said this, the vague and tenuous hope that God is too kind to punish the ungodly has become the, the deadly opiate for the conscience of millions. They think God's too good to punish them. How can a God of love do this? We're going we're gonna to be exploring that question. It's because God is good that he upholds justice. It's yeah. because he's good that he upholds justice. But the very thing that the world is counting on, God's goodness to save them, is going to be the very thing that condemns them in the end. You know, Emperor Ferdinand I said this, let justice be done, though the world perish. He understood the importance of justice. And if there is no punishment for the wicked, there is no justice. You know, if there's no reward for the righteous and no, no, um, no, no punishment for the wicked, then we are and may as well just live our life any old way we choose. You know, Noah was scoffed at when he said that God was going to bring judgment onto the world. They scoffed at Lot when he said God is going to rain down fire and brimstone upon Sodom and Gomorrah. They mocked Daniel and carried on with their party when he told them that the kingdom was going to be overthrown. The Bible says, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words will not pass away. That's what the Savior said. And so everything that's written in the scriptures will ultimately come to pass. Can I have an amen? Hallelujah. And so it's very important that we see that all that God has spoken shall be fulfilled. I don't need to tell you that we're living in disobedient days, you know, rebellious days. Parts of the church are rank disobedience and subordination. I heard somebody say on the internet, uh, he said, Jesus lied. And once you pry me off the, off the roof, after I had, I had this apoplectic emotion, to, I couldn't believe that somebody would allow that on, on YouTube. Um, I thought, man, we are living in such days of apostasy that they would say that about the Lord Jesus Christ. I was incensed. I was smoking. I really had to repent of my attitude before the Lord. I wanted to call down fire and brimstone upon certain people. It's one of those things, you know. There is a famine of the truth of the Word of God today. Truth has fallen in the streets. Can you say amen? You know, we're now living in the days of Isaiah the prophet. You know, they, they said to him in Isaiah chapter 30 and verse um, 10, they said this, and I'm reading it from the NIV. They say to the seers, Prophets, that was my old name for, for the prophets. They say to the seers, see no more visions. And to the prophets, give us no more visions of what is right. This is what the people were calling for. Don't give us any more visions of what is right. Tell us pleasant things. Prophesy illusions. End of quote. So what they what would they do? They were calling for those to tickle their ears so that they can fulfill their lust and their fleshly carnal appetites. That is the day in which we are living today. As it was back then, so it is today. Can you say amen? You see, we are all uh, living and need to recognize that one day we are going to have to give an account for our life. Judgment day is coming for every single one of us. These people who live so flippantly give no thought to tomorrow, no thought to life after death. They're just living for today. But the Bible says in Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. We need to live our lives every day with keeping one eye on eternity. We need to keep eternity in mind every day. 
I want to read you the text that the Lord has laid upon my heart this morning. It's found in Luke chapter 16, and we're going to read from verse 19. A very important passage of scripture, as you'll see as we go through it. It's a story you know well, but it may contain a few surprises. Luke chapter 16, 19, we're starting it. Jesus says, There was a certain rich man, which was clothed in purple and fine linen, and fed sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate, full of sores, and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy upon me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in tormented. The NIV says, I am in agony in these flames. Let me say, you know, people, when, when you talk about hell, people say, oh, I'm going to hell. I'm going to have a party with my mates. You know, we're going to have a good time in hell. No, you're not. This is a place of suffering. This is a place of torment. This is a terrible, terrible place. The world is going to be absolutely surprised when they discover that there's no party in their house. Verse 25. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And besides all this, there is between you and us, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from hence to you. Notice that the, it's fixed. It's fixed. Once you are in hell, it is fixed. There's no change. There's no second chance. There's no, there's no chance of, uh, you know, getting set. Once you die, your spiritual eternity is settled. And if you are saved, you are in glory. If you are not saved, you are in hell. There's no second chance. Then he said, I pray thee, therefore, this is verse 27. Then he said, I pray thee, therefore, Father, that thou would ascend him to my father's house. For I have five brethren that he may testify. The root word testify here in, in, the, in the Greek is the word witness. This man in hell is wanting uh, Lazarus to go to his five brothers and witness to them. So that they might not come to this place of torment. I find it interesting. Suddenly this rich man who had no consciousness of anything spiritual in his life is now very missionary minded. He's praying and he's talking about witnessing because he's in hell. Verse 29, Abraham said unto them, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, nay, Father Abraham, but if one was sent unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto them, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. One did, and they didn't. I always think that thought every time I read that scripture. One did. Jesus rose, and there's still people who won't believe. It's amazing. So, I want to start off by saying to you, some people, this is a, this is a controversial passage of scripture, because some say it's a parable, 
and that we to draw a spiritual lesson. Others say, no, this is an actual account. I come down, I've listened to the arguments on both sides, and I favor that this is not a parable. I believe that this is an actual teaching of scriptures. Jesus, whenever he taught uh, and mentioned parables, uh, he said things like, now learn a parable from the fig tree. Listen to the parable of the sower and the seed. The kingdom of heaven is like. When Jesus taught a parable, he clearly stated that these were parables. He did not do so in this case. Further, indicating that this is a straightforward teaching that God wants us to learn. Then Jesus said, there was a certain rich man. That's as simple as you can make that statement. You can't make it any more simple. There was a certain rich man. Also, Jesus tells the name of the beggar. You know, he says his name is Lazarus. And the Lord never once gave names to anyone in any parable. No, not once, not ever. There's never, Jesus never ever did it. So it's glaringly obvious to me that this is not a parable. It's a teaching that Jesus, as the Son of God, wants us to learn and uh, accept. I understand why certain unscrupulous people would like to spiritualize this away. You know, some people are not happy with the thought that there is a hell to, to contend with. But as we, we just read that scripture, there, there are two principal characters. Uh, there, you know, there's the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man was fabulously wealthy. You know, he was the, the Bill Gates of his day. And, uh, you know, he was dressed in purple and, and fine linen. And, and normally the color purple was reserved for kings and or the super rich. So uh, when you say you dressed in purple, it's like saying you dressed in Gucci or Armani. You know, it's the, it's the very best. It's the top of the range. Uh, so this is what this is actually telling us about this rich man. He was absolutely uh, experiencing life at the very best. It was the creme de la creme. The very best of everything is what this rich man had. His opulent lifestyle is further enhanced by the fact that he fared sumptuously every day. When you look at that, that word sumptuously in the Greek, it's lampros. And lampros actually means brilliant or um, luxurious. So, uh, you know, this wasn't um, a KFC or the fries on the side. You know, he was eating luxuriously. He was eating uh, exquisite affairs, banquets. He, he had, you know, gala occasions every time he sat down to a meal. So if you're going to have crumbs from somebody's table, this is the guy you want to go and visit. You know, he has some really good food, the finest affair. In the eyes of the world, the rich man uh, had, had made it. You know, he was like a luminous figure reflecting all the glorious things that the world could offer. He had a Rolex sundial. He had the fastest camel in town. He had a palatial <laughs> home, you know. He had the very best of everything. People would dream of being like him. He's the first character. The second person I want to talk about is Lazarus. Lazarus was a beggar, and the Bible says every day he was laid at the gate of the rich man. It suggests that this beggar was a cripple. Uh, he may have had an accident uh, in, in his life, or may, maybe he was laying from birth. We're not told in the scriptures. We left a surmise. Uh, but he was laid every day at the gate of the rich man. We know that he was ill because he was covered in sores. When you look at that, that, that word in, in the Greek, uh, it, it's halkos. And halkos means a suppurating ulcer. 
So he was really in a lot of pain. And so the dogs would come and, and lick, the, lick the sores, and that was the only comfort that he could possibly experience. He was sickly, unable to walk, probably meant that he was unable to work. He was probably homeless as a result of that. He's the polar opposite of this rich man who's dressed in purple. You know, this poor man, uh, Lazarus, is destitute. And we can surmise that his clothes were in rags and that, you know, he was starving and in poor health. And the Bible says that he soon died. Jesus tells us that he was carried to Abraham's bosom, place of comfort and rest. Now, remember, uh, uh, Abraham, who Abraham is, he's the father of the faithful. And so here is Lazarus, a faithful servant of the Lord, who had, had life for him had been incredibly difficult, but he had trusted in the Lord, and now he's with Abraham. We need to understand something. How many know the story of, of, of uh, the rich man and Lazarus? Yeah. Do you, do you know his name's not Lazarus? Right, I'll show it to you. The, the Gospels are actually uh, an, an account of Jewish happenings ar around the time of Jesus. And they were written in, in Koine Greek. And, and, and the Greek, uh, there, there were two forms of Greek. And there's an interesting story uh, as, as to how we discovered that there were two forms of Greek. There was street Greek or common Greek, if you like. And, and there was, uh, you know, classical Greek that was used by the, the, the poets and the philosophers. So you had street Greek, common Greek, and the, the language of uh, classical Greek, the language of poets and philosophers. So it's interesting that we find out that Lazarus' name is, is really Eliezer. So it's really, the story is about Eliezer and the, and the rich man, but we, we will continue to refer to him as Lazarus, as he is so well known as that. Is that, is that street Greek or the other one? Uh, street Greek is the common everyday yeah. language of. So Greek. this name, like, Lazarus. It, Lazarus. Okay. Uh, in in street Greek, it actually means Eliezer. Ah, okay. 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 So, and Eliezer is actually a compound of of two uh, Greek words, El meaning God and Azar, my helper. So you could literally translate his name as God is my helper. And we'll see in the account just how God helped Lazarus because he's the one that comes out on top in the end. When the end of the story is finally told, he comes out on top. I don't know if you noticed, but nothing was said about Lazarus being buried. That's right. Poor old guy, he's carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Okay. So. Uh, it's kind of interesting when you look at the, the, the historical background at the time of Jesus. There was a, a tradition that they practiced. Excuse me. Uh, the strangers and the poor who died in Jerusalem uh, and who did not have means of a fancy funeral uh, were actually buried in the potter's field. You are aware of that scripture. Um, and the reason that they were, were buried in the potter's field is that... <laughs> so the reason that they were buried in the potter's field is that the potter's field was normally owned 
by somebody, uh, mer the merchants of the ceramics industry. And they would go into the field and they would remove all the clay, leaving these big divots, big holes where the clay is removed. And when they'd removed all the clay, they, would, they had no further use for, for the land and they would often sell it. And the priests were always the first line to get it because these holes made ideal shallow graves to bury the, the, the poor and the stranger. And that's what really happened. So Lazarus was not just poor. He was destitute. He was the poorest of the poor, which probably means that he was not buried at all. He was probably thrown onto the garbage dump. That's what they did. If you didn't have family to look after you and you were poor, they didn't give you a funeral. They just threw you onto the garbage dump. Doctors McGee and Rogers says the beggars of that day with no family when they died just tossed onto the garbage dump to be burnt in the, in the valley of Hen. And uh, it's really a, a tough thing. It says that the rich man also died after this. And so the rich man was died, and he was giving this lavish funeral. You know, everything that money could possibly buy. It was a, a beautiful affair in keeping with his status. But when he awoke, he found himself in hell. Our last breath here is our first breath in eternity. You know, the truth is that we are going to live forever, either in heaven or we're going to live in hell. Can you say amen? And in verse 23, it says, And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. You know, if you have a superficial reading uh, of the scripture, the first time you probably read it, you might have been uh, concluded that, hey, if you're rich, uh, you go to hell, and if you're poor, you go to heaven. But that's not actually the case at all, as you are well aware. Uh, Abraham was a very rich man, and he is in paradise. Genesis 13.2 says this, And Abraham was very rich in cattle, in silver, and in gold. So how rich is very rich? You look up the Hebrew word, it's, uh, it's meod. And meod is translated 40 different times in, in, in the text as being uh, either uh, exceeding or exceedingly. So you could say that Abraham was exceedingly rich in gold and silver and cattle. He was so rich he had his own private army. He was so rich that kings made treaties with him. Not, not just ordinary, ordinary people. Kings made treaties. So there are four kinds of people when it comes to money that we need to think of here. There's the godly rich and the godly poor. There's the ungodly rich and the ungodly poor. You know, listen to Jesus. Jesus was both rich and poor. Second uh, uh, Corinthians chapter nine, eight and, nine, and verse nine says, "Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor." So Jesus was both rich and poor. Excuse me. So the question is not whether you're rich or poor. The question is, are you godly? That is the issue. Money isn't the issue. Godliness is. Amen. Amen. So the rich man is in hell because he hadn't repented, and uh, he's, he's not a righteous man. He's part of the ungodly rich, and that's why he's in hell. And Jesus is giving account. We need to understand the timing. This is very crucial to understand and interpreting this, uh, because this is just prior to Jesus' death and, and resurrection. So this is really the culmination of the, the old covenant. 
uh, as we find things happening. Unfortunately, our English Bible uh, translates a whole a slew of words as hell uh, from the text. You know, sometimes hell is referred to as the grave, or, or uh, there, there are many other which we'll, we will look at. Uh, so it's not just the grave. Um, it, there are a number of words which we'll look at, and I've tried to put them in an order so that we don't get overwhelmed, uh, because it can be quite difficult. In the Old Testament, when you died, you went to a place called Shul. And Shul was a place of disembodied spirits. Uh, both the righteous and the wicked went to Shul. So that gets a little bit confusing if, if you're trying to study this out. And both those words, uh, uh, Shul, uh, is translated as hell. The Greek is the equivalent to Shul, and it really um, is Hades, which is the, the, the translation of Shul, is a general reference to the place of the dead. Okay, So both Shul and Hades are translated in our Bible as hell. But more specifically, Hades refers to the temporary place of the unsaved, okay, the unsaved dead, prior to the great white throne judgment, okay. So this is seen in the account that we are looking at here in Luke 16. In the Old Testament, when the righteous uh, died, they went to Shul, and they went to separate compartments uh, to, to the wicked. So they, they both went uh, to, to Shul, and the Righteous went to the place called Abraham's bosom. Jesus referred to it as a place called paradise. It's a place of blessing for the righteous. The righteous didn't go immediately to heaven. So paradise is not heaven. Paradise is the, the holding place uh, until heaven was opened. So the righteous didn't go immediately again because it's not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away their sin. Hebrews 10.4. It's impossible. That, that only covered their sin. And it really points us to the greater, more excellent sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's what the Old Testament was doing. It says, hey, don't stop here. You need to go on and see that there's more to this understanding of righteousness. And that's that Jesus Christ becomes our atoning sacrifice. And so we're going we're gonna to look at it a little bit like that. So, <clears throat> so before the resurrection uh, uh of Christ, the righteous went to paradise, or Abraham's bosom, the resting place. It's a place of peace and blessing uh, for the righteous. But after the resurrection, Second Corinthians 5 8 says, For to be absent from the body is to be present with, with the Lord. Lord. So now, because Jesus has ascended and he's gone into the heavens, into the holy of holies, and placed his own blood upon the perfect tabernacle, we, when, when believers die, we, we go straight into the presence of the Lord. And we see an interesting reference here in, in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 8. Uh, we see that Jesus descended and led captivity captive. He went to Abraham's bosom and he picked up the righteous who now can enter into heaven itself because Jesus has made the perfect atonement yeah. uh, uh, in the heavenly tabernacle. And so they are led forth uh, from Abraham's bosom to the greater glory of heaven. How wonderful, Amen. how glorious that God said. When we die, straight away we step into the heaven, into heaven. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Unfortunately, the story is not so good for the wicked. The wicked, when they die, they go to hates or hell. It's a place of torment and suffering. The rich man is speaking. Let's look at verse 24. The rich man says, and he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy upon me and send Lazarus 
to that he may dip the tip of his finger into water and cool my tongue, for I am in torment and I'm in agony in this flame. It's interesting to me that this rich man never gets tired of bossing around uh, you know, Nazareth. He didn't do any good for him while he was alive, but he doesn't mind sending Nazareth to run around and do his bidding. Dr. Uh, Jordan Rogers actually brings something out that's very interesting. He said, in torment is in the present active participle. And the present active participle means that this rich man was living in the very center of hell. It was happening all around about him. He was existing in torments. Jesus takes this concept a little bit further when you go into the original Greek, because in the original Greek, the word is not torment. It's torments, plural. And so the rich man is in torments, plural. He's experiencing multiple torments forever. This is a terrible place to be. Jesus reveals that the rich man is existing in the most dire consequences possible. He's suffering to the utmost. So Jesus says this word torments. Hades, that's the abode of the dead, the temporary place of the wicked. At the end of the age, at the final judgment, the great white throne judgment, when all judgments come to an end, the, the Bible says in Revelation 20, 14, that death and hell are cast into the lake of fire. And so that, that's going to be the ultimate judgment of all the wicked. They will end up in the lake of fire. So think of it this way, that Hades is only the temporary holding place uh, until the final judgment, for God uh, judges all nations. Now, the lake of fire is not a pleasant place. Okay, The lake of fire is, the, is another Greek word that's also translated hell. So, you know, you've got hell, you've got uh, Hades, you've got Shul, you've got the grave, you've got uh, Gehenna, which is also huge. Translated as hell. In our English Bible, it's all the word hell. But if you go back into the original languages, you see that there, there is a very uh, clear distinction between the, the two here. Gehenna is a reference to the lake of fire that we read about in, in Revelation 20 and verse 14. Gehenna is an eternal, never ending abode of the unsaved in hellfire and brimstone. The Greek word actually comes from an actual place in Jerusalem, and uh, it's called the Valley of Hinnom. And Gehenna is actually the shortened version of, of, of this Greek translation, the Valley of Hinnom. It's, it, to be technical, it's, it's a contraction. It's a Greek contraction. Like we, we say the word con for convict. Everybody knows when you're talking about, if you can't do the time, don't do the time. That, that word con is a reference to the word convict. That's a contraction. And so we, we see here uh, this word Gehenna that we translate as hell is actually a contraction of the Greek talking about the valley of Henna. And so uh, it, it's uh, really, they use this um, valley of Henna um, as, as it is so like the place like hell itself. Uh, so they use this word Gehenna to describe it. The Valley of Hinnom, if, if you know your Old Testament history, it, it's really quite fascinating. There were some evil kings uh, in the Old Testament that didn't serve the Lord. You know, if you go through the Book of Kings, you know, this one did evil in the sight of the Lord, this one did evil, this one did evil. And by the time, and it's, finally you get one that did right in the eyes of the Thank you, Lord. There is at least one guy who's doing it right, you know. Most of the kings were evil. And in particular, Ahaz and Manasseh were incredibly evil kings as they governed 
uh, Israel. They had apostatized and they served the god Moloch. And Moloch was the fire god. And uh, they practiced human sacrifice in Israel. Absolutely terrible. They threw live children into the fire. I, I, I got a glimpse of that this week. And it, it really it really affected me. You can read about it in Second Kings uh, 21 and 6 and the other references. But how evil to throw live children into a fire. It beggars the mind. And that's why this place, Gehenna, is a, a picture of evil and suffering and torment. But thank God there were some great kings. And Josiah was a wonderful king who loved the Lord. He came along and he thought, I need to stop what's going on here in, in the valley of Gehenna. So he defiled that place so that they couldn't worship uh, Moloch any longer. He defiled it. And uh, from that point on, uh, Gehenna, or, or the Valley of Hinnom, became Israel's uh, garbage dump. And that's that's why they couldn't uh, serve the, uh, Moloch there anymore. And so the, the dead destitute were probably burned uh, in, in Gehenna or uh, the Valley of Hinnom. Dead animals were thrown in there, uh, uh, feces and, and, and other things, you know, anything that would defile that place was thrown. And this fire was burning day and night. And so it became a, an incredible picture. Uh, it reminds us of the suffering and the torment of, of people being thrown into the lake of fire. This fire never, never went out day and night and it burned forever. And so it was a really a perfect time of the, the lake of fire in the book of Revelation, a never-ending horror, suffering, and torment. At the great right throne judgment, Jesus said in Revelations 20 and verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the final destination of all the unsaved. Their cellmates will include the devil, the Antichrist and the false prophet, the unholy trinity. Hell and the lake of fire are places of eternal suffering and torment. Do you remember what Jesus used to say about this? He mentioned how many, many times. And in Matthew 5.30, he says this. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off. Cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish. And not that thy whole body shall be cast into hell. Jesus is not advocating self-mutilation. He's trying to make the point that you've got to do everything within your power to make sure that you and others don't end up in hell. Can you say amen? Amen. So, you know, this is a place of endless suffering and torment. And it's our duty as believers who know that this is the fate of the world, who don't know Jesus, to tell them. We, we need to tell them that, that they are in mortal danger. You know, we need to, when you talk about hell, it's going to, we need to have some answers here, you know. And so if you believe in hell, I guarantee you start talking to people about hell, you will be challenged. Yes. You will be challenged. And you need an answer for those that challenge this doctrine. And so it's incumbent upon you, if you believe in hell, you need to know how to answer them when, when they say, when this is the accusation that they bring. How can a loving God cast anybody into a place of eternal suffering and torment? 
You will be asked that question. And if we are good servants of the Lord, we will, we will know the answer. And the answer is that God never sends anybody to hell. Can I have an amen? amen. God never sent anyone to hell. Never once. No, not ever. Never happened. If we end up in hell, it's because we rejected God's plan of salvation. And that was our choice. Our doing. God has made a, a way of escape for everyone. And his name is Jesus. That's why uh, we, we, we need to be able to share uh, about hell. That there is hope because Jesus came. When people do that and they, they challenge you with that question, so how can a loving God do that? I, I like to turn that question around upon them. And I said, why would any man choose hell, a place of torment, over a loving God? And it puts the onus back on them. Look at the heart of God. Second Peter 3, 9. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God has no grudge against anyone. God loves us. He cares for us. I'm going to make a big statement. Please listen carefully, otherwise you're going to think I'm a, I'm a heretic here. This is what a lot of Christians don't understand. You don't go to hell because you're a sinner. You don't go to hell because you're a sinner. Nobody goes to hell for their sins. For what they've done. You can commit the very worst sins imaginable and not be condemned. In both covenants, you end up in hell because you reject God's substitutionary sacrifice. That's, right. That's why people go to hell. Because they reject God's provision to save them. There is no sin that the blood can't wash away. The power of the blood is so powerful that it doesn't matter what you've done or how many times you've done it wrong, that there is forgiveness in the mighty name of Jesus and there's power in the blood to cleanse us. As I bring this to a close this morning, I want to remind you of what, what God did in Deuteronomy 30 and verse 19. He said, I call heaven and earth to record this day against you. I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that thou and thy seed may live. You know, if we end up in hell, it's because we chose to be there. A person must literally fight their way to get into hell. They must reject the Savior, Jesus Christ. Yes. They must ignore the cross. They must trample over the blood of the Savior. They must deny the resurrection, refuse to believe the scriptures. They must quench the, the conviction of the Holy Spirit. They must spurn the love of their Heavenly Father. Now, my friends, if somebody ends up in hell, it's because they chose to be there. You must fight your way into hell. You've got to rebel against every obstacle that a loving God has put in your way to protect you. And to save you. God does not send anybody to hell. He lays down his life in front of you. And you literally have to walk over him. To enter into hell. I'm going to close with this thought. Of C.S. Lewis's. A wonderful, a wonderful way of expressing this. So in the world there are only two kinds of people. Those who are like Satan. Who sneer at the father. And say not your will. But mine be done. And those who are like Jesus, God the Son, who say to the Father, not my will, but thine be done. Those that sneer at God and say, I'm doing things my way, not your will, but mine be done. 
on the day that they die, and as they descend into hell, a broken heart of God will say to them, Not my will, but you must be done here. It's about heads. Father, we thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy, so rich and so free. Lord, as we look at the evil people of the world, we, we would ask, why on earth would you want to save even this miserable wretch? But Lord, your, your love is so great and so all-consuming that even the vilest of sinners, Lord, if they, if they truly repent and believe, are washed in the blood of the Lamb and are saved. Lord, as we consider the seriousness of the, this, this doctrine of heaven and hell, that there is a, a hell to shun and a heaven to gain. Help us, Heavenly Father, to understand that it's our duty as believers to share with those that are in dire jeopardy. Lord, once we've done that, we've discharged our duty. It's not our responsibility to save them, but it is ours to tell them that they are in mortal peril. So, Lord, I pray that as we sit and consider this message, Lord, that we would consider our loved ones, Lord, because we, we minister to those closest to us, around about us, and then go out into the nations. But I pray, Lord, that we would consider, Lord, the, the awful fate, should they die for some unexpected reason and end up in hell. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray for mercy. I pray that you would be merciful to us your congregation, Lord, that you would put a passion in our hearts to preach the gospel, Lord, to save men and women from this place of eternal suffering. Help us, Lord, to realize that this is the reality. There is such a thing as hell because Jesus paid such an incredible price to keep men from going there. So, Lord, I pray that we would take our job as witnesses more seriously, that, Lord, we, we would Join with the suffering church, Lord, to proclaim Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And Lord, see men and women come to the saving knowledge of Jesus. And so, Lord, I thank you for this time we've been able to spend together. Thank you, Lord. Speak to us. Minister to us that we might minister to others, Lord, about your Son, Jesus. Amen. Praise God. Steve, are you ready for a, a closing song? Praise God. Thank you for that. Um, just to say very quickly um, that this Thursday will be the prayer meeting at David and, and Paddy's place. Um, so it's still okay, Dave? Awesome. Okay. Praise God. So this Thursday, really want to encourage you to, to come to, to